Hello, I'm Jolyon Rubenstein, professional funny man and reader-outer of scripts like this one. And I'm obligatory investigative journalistic sidekick James Ball, and you're listening to The New Conspiracist. This is a podcast that boldly goes where most people know better than to tread. Each week, we take one specific conspiracy theory and one great guest, and we dissect it. What's the conspiracy? Who's behind it? What evidence is there for it? And why do people believe it? And then we settle, once and for all, whether it's fact or fake news. So whether you want answers on 9-11 or the Loch Ness Monster, on Benghazi, or whether Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by her body double, you're in the right place. Now this week, for the first episode of the new series, we have got Oscar-winning documentary maker Alex Gibney. You may have heard of him from such documentary series as Going Clear. He made an incredible movie on Lance Armstrong. He's made some of the most important documentaries, arguably, of the 21st century. And today, we've got him talking about something, well, I'd say probably up there on at least the top 10 conspiracy theories of all time. So James, what are we talking about this week? It's absolutely phenomenal. What he's joining us today to talk about is the alleged work of another director, because Alex is joining us to discuss whether or not the moon landings were faked by Stanley Kubrick. Let's jump right in, shall we? So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Well, thank you. Though my name is actually Stanley Kubrick. But we'll <laughs> yeah. so, uh, I, I hope you feel, you know, we've got a British tendency to underplay American guests. So uh, yeah. Julian's quite good for trying to compensate for that. So yeah. I hope you feel that we've uh, sufficiently built you up. That was, a, that was a good enough drum roll. I'm ready. <laughs> In series one, we covered such uh, huge issues as QAnon, um, as, you know, anti-vax, but one particular issue that we totally, totally left off. I'd say this has got to be in the top five golden oldies conspiracy theories, no? So, yeah, and it's it really sort of continues, and a lot of people still quite determinedly believe it. And so, you know, I think when we when we looked over, we, we did realize we've got a big topic or two. We've got a few of the classics that we've yet to address. And so, you know, we thought, start strong, hey? Totally. And this is, of course, the absolutely fundamental tenet of modern conspiracy theories, which is the idea that Stanley Kubrick fate the moon landings. James, what is this all about? So I think it helps partly to think about how important the moon landing was. You know, you had this ideological and very territorial and real struggle between the Soviet Union and the US. It was two completely different visions of how the world worked, you know, would democracy and freedom and let's be honest, capitalism be the engine of the future and the the model of the future or would it be socialism or communism or this statism of the Soviet Union? And space at that time represented this whole new world of possibility And the Soviets through the 60s were winning. They got the first man in space. The Soviet rockets were better throughout the 60s and frankly, probably largely better even at the time of the moon landing. And so this famous promise had been made to, you know, land an American on the moon within 10 years. And it really, at the time it was made, the technology wasn't there. The US was behind and desperately needed it to come off. 
And so even in the 60s, people were dubious about any sort of stated advancements and so on. But then handily, with, with not all that long left to go on the, uh, on the clock, the US managed it perfectly first time and got everyone home alive and got the footage to prove it. And so perhaps understandably, people had questions about that. This seismic moment as no longer being confined to one planet you know, this moment that felt as if it would start a whole new phase in our evolution. And people quite logically sort of made some connections. You know, this footage was amazing and on the moon. Kubrick had been filming 2001, A Space Odyssey, which included people walking on the moon. And so why not try and join these things up? You know, why not? If you had the ability to launch rockets into low orbit, do a real rocket launch, show some fake footage from Kubrick's soundstage, given he's got it set up already, and then, you know, do your landing, that that bit you'd already managed to do. And people would assume because they'd seen a real launch, a real landing, and the footage in the middle, that the whole thing was real. Now, there were lots of theories offered as to why Kubrick would participate in such a thing. And, you know, perhaps the most sort of common one was that Kubrick's younger brother, Raoul, had been either an associate or quite a senior figure in the American Communist Party. Um, And so in exchange to prevent the huge public embarrassment to, you know, Kubrick, the creator of Dr. Strangelove, uh, he participated in this sort of shabby cover-up. And so, you know, if you wanted a director to fake something that important and you had that leverage, why would you not go to someone who could create sort of such iconic and memorable moments as Stanley Kubrick? I mean, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Because it sort of starts, as most good conspiracies do, in Boreham Wood. (laughs) <laughs> at, the, at the MGM studio, where supposedly Rumsfeld, young Rumsfeld, and Kissinger went to sort of kiss Kubrick's ass. Apparently, uh, you know, Kissinger was at pains to tell Kubrick that Dr. Strangelove was Nixon's favorite movie and that he would do anything to, uh, to have him involved in this huge, massive deception. And there are fascinating different elements of it. Everything from, you know, the lighting of uh, Buzz Aldrin as he came down, um, you know, that famous, famous shot. Immediately there were cries of how, how can there, how can it possibly be lit if he's in shadow? And then, of course, the, which we'll come on to later, the amazing references that people think they've found in The Shining. But I want to move on to Alex. I mean, and of course, the flag blowing in the wind. Oh, of course. Of course, that's the classic. But Alex, when was the first time you came into contact with this idea that maybe the moon landings had been faked? I became interested um, in it from a kind of formal perspective. Like, how would you do it if you were going to do it? Both how would you do it on the ground and like, you know, because there was a rather 
a big public launch, how would you spirit away the astronauts, I guess to Las Vegas, wherever, and hide them and, and while 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 Kubrick was was hard at work trying to, you know, fake the images that, that would supposedly come from from the moon and and do them either you you could you could argue that that the kind of shitty quality of the imagery because it's you know as opposed to the the seventy millimeter footage that they shot on Earth you know the quality of the imagery on the Moon is pretty bad quality now either you could argue that that Kubrick was brilliant by degrading the footage in that way or that it proves that no self respecting director would allow. Um, such um, shabby imagery to be, to be used. Who's going to go to all that trouble of faking a moon landing? Have you guys heard of the um, sort of amazing supposed Easter eggs that have been left in The Shining for us from Kubrick? Have you guys have you aware of this? this? This was sort of said to be his kind of veiled confession, wasn't it? I love some of those. There's like the the... All work and no play, that, that message that Jack yeah. Nicholson types over and over and over again. A-L-L is actually Apollo 11, A-1-1, right? Yeah, totally. And then it gets even better because Tommy is wearing a, an Apollo 11 uh, jumper and then goes into room 237, which, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you know, is an obvious code for the 237,000 miles that it would take for you to fly to the moon. And then he comes out unable to speak, a literal metaphor for Kubrick's gagging. And, and it, 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 it just it gets more extraordinary because, you know, in the store cupboard, there, there's, there's stores, there's, there, there was this drink called Tang, T-A-N-G, Tang. And, and in the adverts in America at the time, if you drank Tang, it turned you into an astronaut. So people were immediately like, look, there, he's putting the evidence right in front of us. But uh, well, not only that, there were the twins, you know, as, as you know, the, the, clearly a reference to the Gemini program. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, because you mentioned Room 237, and as I, I seem to recall, the, the, in the novel, in the Stephen King novel, it's Room 217. Exactly. So, so, so Kubrick ingeniously changed it from 217 to 237 in order to make the apology far more clear for us, you know, in the future. Is this the problem, Alex? Are there just too many sheeple who just can't understand the clear and obvious signs that are being given to them? <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that this particular conspiracy theory still seems to capture people's imagination. It does. It does. I mean, because not that many people have been to the moon. And um, if you're going to fake something, that seems like a pretty good one. Um, and, uh, and it's also so outrageous. It's hiding in plain sight. Mm. There's some pretty easy explanations for, for, for some of the stuff. I mean, you know, the, all the stuff about the flag flying. Um, you know, if you look at the flag, it's clearly got a crossbeam. You know, it's not, it's not that complicated. <laughs> and like, it's, it's on display in museums as well. You can see the flag with the crossbeam. It also doesn't move in any of the footage. You see them put the crossbeam out and the that's why the flag's sort of there. Warning, this podcast contains juicy tales of a super dysfunctional family. Brothers betraying brothers, 
friends becoming enemies, and a mother trying her best to keep everything from falling apart. No, this isn't a reality TV rewatch. I'm Dan Jones, your host, and this is one of my all-time favourite true stories. Join me on a trip to the Middle Ages to meet history's most dangerous dynasty, the Plantagenets. This season, the plots are thicker, the ambitions greater, and the betrayals are even more devious in the epic saga of the family that shaped our world. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for, season two. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We all have questions that keep us up at night. The self-help industry tells us they have answers. As a journalist and a skeptic, I'm not so sure. So I've set out to talk to people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. I'm Catherine Rowland. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. On season one, we're diving deep into the portal of plant medicine and psychedelics. Listen to Seeking wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Alex, was um, I've always wondered whether kind of the reason the moon landing was faked has kind of stuck and resonated for so long is we thought it was going to be the start of a new era. Or, you know, I say this, I was born 16 years after this happened. Even Jolyon was born after this happened. But people seem to believe that this would kind of mark, you know, if not cafes on the moon and go and do a day trip, the start of something going further, sort of dreaming bigger, space being something crucial to our development. And it has been, but in the most boring of ways for things like GPS and communications, I think most people think the internet relies on space. Uh, Sad to say it doesn't. It's all cables under the sea. But it's sort of this huge promise. And then, you know, this thing that was meant to be a, a launch pad for something much bigger ended up being the high spot. Like, we went back a few times, but, you know, sequels are rarely as good as the original. (laughs) And then we've ended up in this weird position where now the idea that you could fake the sort of footage of something like Walking on the Moon is completely uncontroversial. In modern tech, I suspect most of it... So I'd I'd be amazed if you couldn't do it, Alex, but Jolly and me could probably do a passable job of it with... (laughs) a mobile phone and a home laptop. Whereas nowhere on the planet right now exists technology that could get you to the moon and land you on it. Um, And so, you know, right now it would be easy to fake it and impossible to do it. Do you think that plays into why it still feels almost more credible that we faked it than that we did it? I do. I mean, be, be, because if if a lot of people could have gone there, it, it, it would have seemed far more banal. But now it just seems it does seem sort of in retrospect uh, extraordinary. And as you say it, it, it also seemed peculiar that you know, with the ramp up that suddenly got us to the moon, it wasn't followed up by a whole series of expeditionary teams. So the fact that there's not a lot of traffic to and from the moon, I think, is is useful in, in this regard. It, it, it's one of those wonderful things, too, where, OK, so have you disproven the theory that it was a fake? Mm. You know, um, 
So no, um, I suppose not. I mean, so yeah, I think that's part of it. Also remember that period was a pretty good period to be suspicious of the government. 1969, mm. um, you know, there weren't a lot of people who were big believers in, uh, well, there were a lot of people who were big believers. I mean, it was a tremendously patriotic moment for a lot of people. But if you're looking for conspiracies, if you're looking for the dark side of the promise, uh, there was plenty of it in 1969. And so why not think that the government faked, you know, there, there was a political dimension to this too. Why not think that the government faked a moon landing for its mm. own a benefit in order to win the propaganda war against the Ruskies. So um, I, I want to just move us uh, a little while to a little bit of filmmaking um, sort of debunk, because you, you asked earlier about, you know, how do you disprove this? And um, and a sort of film expert from the University of, Hart- University of Hertfordshire had a go at this and was saying, hey, here's just some technical reasons why faking this thing would have been an absolute headache in 1969. Um and, you know, the idea that it was taped to the studio um, sort of said, well, you know, every every studio camera is 30 frames a second. This was 10 frames a second, slow scan TV, and you had to use a special camera to get that. And so sort of, you know, it's not hard to go, well, you just used this special camera that you supposedly attached to it in a studio, um, and then to get the low gravity effect, you just slowed it down. And apparently in, in this era, you had to either over crank a camera or just take loads and loads of footage to be able to uh, actually then, as you broadcast it, slow it. Um, but the storage only let you get 30 seconds of live action to make 90 seconds of playback, which meant that a camera capable of recording and storing 143 minutes of slow motion would have had to record 47 minutes of live action, which was something like 90 to several thousand times better than the most <laughs> advanced technology on the world in the world at the time. And so you have this odd thing where, at that point, the conspiracy relies on NASA being successfully able to invent much better cameras that exist and keep them secret, but not able to invent better rockets, despite employing rocket scientists. Um, Otherwise, people apparently say, well, you could have shot it on film. Everyone knows you can shoot as much film as you like. I love that. Also, you can imagine uh, the the moments with your your extras or your your lead actors saying, no, just a little bit slower, a, a little bit slower down that ladder. Just sorry, can we do that? Just a little bit. So we've got to, you know, it's it's only thirty seconds. We just need to record this. I mean, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary idea, really, that you could shoot something, slow it down. You could have pre-recorded it. They're only telling you it's live. <laughs> the reasons you could rule out film were slowing down film meant you would have needed about six and a half thousand feet of thirty-five mil film to get this, which is six and a half reels. Um, you can splice reels. You can't splice reels without making it obvious. So the one, we can categorically rule out that it was film. And so you're left with the lighting. And lighting, yeah, it's the sun, but the ground reflects. There are more than one sort. There is more than one source of light on the moon, or we wouldn't be 
be able to see the moon. Like we know <laughs> the moon is reflective. And if it wasn't, we wouldn't see it in the sky. Um, I mean, I find this filmmaking stuff, uh, and again, you know, credit all of that to uh, Howard Berry. I find that really fascinating. It really kind of pulled me into thinking about the strangeness of a world where this stuff was still all very physical. I mean, I read that same article and I mean, I actually thought of a better way to fake it, which Kubrick might have thought of if he was doing this, because the guy who wrote that piece was right. I mean, look, whether it's recording on a on a video device or uh, whether you're shooting on film and you want to create slow motion, you shoot many, many more frames than you would otherwise do. You could do it in film, but in the film technology back in the day was not hooked up digitally to um, um, the kind of processors that, that film is hooked up to now if you decide to even shoot film and, and where you, you can manipulate the image much more easily. Um, and so you wouldn't have needed to splice it. You could have hot spliced it and you could have printed it, but all of that would have taken time. And they didn't have that much time because, um, well, I suppose they could have shot it long before the astronauts disappeared, you know, uh, while they were supposedly flying to the moon. But, um, but also the quality would have been so much better than, than it was. I mean, if you were going to fake it, you would probably have been better off investing in the shitty video technology of the day um, and, and, and made it purposefully bad um, so that, so that it, it, it was hard to see. I mean, that would have gone against every instinct in Kubrick's body, I think, to think like, how can I make the image look <laughs> as pretty as possible? <laughs> yeah. It was like that may have been like they 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 would have had to held a gun to his head. It's like Stanley. This is going to look worse than you can possibly No, please don't make me. I mean, actually, I don't think enough has been made of that point. I mean, Kubrick, famous for his ludicrous, ludicrous precision in framing and quality of image, just being told, just de-res that a bit, mate. Just just take it. Take some of the grain out of that. I have to ask, uh, Alex, if, if you were being asked to uh, fake a major, major world event, uh, you know, by... Pick, pick the intelligence agency of your choice. You know, choose, choose your choose your fighter. Um, do you have one that you would find a particularly interesting challenge? If you actually wanted to fool the world, do you have one that you would want to do? Or and have you ever thought about how you'd do it? Well, I mean, honestly, the assassination of JFK is a pretty good one. Mm. Because of the Zapruder film and the way the quality of that was done, imagine having a couple of other Super 8 cameras um, on site. That seems pretty good to me. Yeah, that's um, good. That is good. Because, because once you start stepping frames like that, um, you know, the, the silver halide crystals and the, and, and, and the way they're exposed, it, it becomes very impressionistic. So what are you looking at? You think maybe that's another figure, and does that look like a rifle, or is that a a long branch of a tree? But uh, but upon further inspection, as you blow the image up bigger and bigger and bigger, so the quality of of, of that high grain footage, and and particularly for moving the camera, would result in a pretty blurry image. And and yet that's that's the most convincing way of coming up with something is is to really 
is to make it look worse, not better. Yeah. It's amazing how many conspiracies HD has ruined, actually. <laughs> you know, Bigfoot, Nessie, um, all of these, you know, is that uh, when you actually can zoom in and enhance like they do in CSI, it tends to be so boring, doesn't it? Well, but that's funny. It's funny because there's, there's a reverse of that, isn't there? Because there's also the ones, you know, Alex talked about earlier, the conspiracy theory around whether a bunker bus, the missile was thrown into the Pentagon in 9-11. And the, the conspicuousness of not having core video footage also seems to be such a central point now because we just expect everything to have been captured on film, don't we, on some level? Yeah, it's, I, I always find that one really interesting because, like... You know, Alex, you've spent loads of time in D.C. You know, I've lived in D.C. I've lived in New York. The number of people who would have had a camera out in downtown Manhattan versus the number of people who actually trek out anywhere near the Pentagon, which is <laughs> nowhere near central D.C. Right. It's nowhere near the White House. It's not right. a, a tourist spot. And you didn't have phone cameras. You know, people would carry video cameras around because they were going to take some really basic, terrible footage from the top of the Empire State Building after queuing for 50 minutes. Or, <laughs> you know, God forbid, they'd actually gone to the bloody island that the Statue of Liberty is on, <laughs> which no human does more than once voluntarily. Um, but it just didn't s seem to occur to people that, yeah, of course there were cameras on 9-11 and f on the on the Twin Towers, especially for the second one, because they were filming from the first. You know, if there had been a second plane going to the Pentagon, you would have seen a, cam a, a shot of that. You know, people do seem to sometimes miss the obvious, don't they? Yeah, I, I agree. I certainly agree with that on, on that point, because... New York is, I mean, everybody is using cameras all the time. I and mean, even back in the day, because of what iPhone came in in what, 2007? Yeah. So yeah. not only tourists, but <laughs> New York is like the, the mecca of documentary filmmakers. Not so Washington, D.C. No self-respecting documentary filmmaker would live there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really fascinated about what we were briefly touched on earlier, Alex, which is this sense of suspicion that seems to run through such a kind of core of so many of the, you know, bizarre characters who are the sort of protagonists in so many of your, your narratives. Do you think that this suspicion, this underlying societal suspicion that seemed to spread through the suburbs you know, that, that, that sort of became such a fundamental part of McCarthyism. Uh, is America still really sort of, is it still so powerful that it sort of supercharged this belief in conspiracy? Well, it's suspicion. I think it's suspicion is certainly part of it. But I often think of conspiracy theories as, you know, evincing a desperate need for certainty. That is to say, something that explains it all. You know, everything is so confusing, so chaotic, so difficult to, to comprehend or understand. So back in the McCarthy era, you know, it was just the communists. Of course, it was the communists. They've infiltrated everything. Um, and so once you have that unified field theory explanation, it, it becomes easy to understand why everything's going to hell in a handbasket. If anything goes wrong, it's the communists. Simple. And they all meet in a small building and, and they hatch plans. And if you see somebody you don't like, it's 
certainly going to be a communist. So it's that sense of certainty, I think, that, that appeals to be, you, you, you have all these pieces that seem to fit together so nicely. And once they do, you, you feel so comfortable. Mm. So I frankly sort of find it saves a lot of time just to still blame the communists now. I find it quite comfortable. <laughs> so I feel I feel like there's an elephant in the room that we have to address before we uh, before we wrap up, which is uh, we have somehow got this far into uh, a podcast recording about Stanley Kubrick and the moon landings, and none of us have mentioned Dark Side of the Moon. Unbelievable. <laughs> so have uh, have either of you watched it? It is a French documentary put out in 2002, which uh, interviews um, Buzz Aldrin. It uh, interviews Kubrick's widow. Um, it talks to. It uses footage of Kissinger, of Donald Rumsfeld, CIA director Richard Helms, and it exposes that uh, the CIA um, worked worked with Kubrick to uh, fake fake the moon landing and it gets more and more sort of dramatic as it goes on you know some of kubrick's uh, assistants start dying in mysterious accidents uh, <laughs> on, uh, one takes shelter in a yeshiva in brooklyn uh, and dies 10 years later kubrick is spared and eventually sort of gets a warning and wow. towards the end of the movie uh, general vernon walters agrees to actually reveal the secret of how Kubrick died in his house, but uh, uh, says he'll reveal it in a recording session the next day and dies overnight. And you can actually, you, you can see this is a 52-minute documentary format sort of thing. And it's only if you make it to the credits that you get a blooper reel that reveals it's a mockumentary. Amazing. Uh, and it's full of little in-jokes and errors and Easter eggs. Um, and it has various key witnesses and interviewees. Uh, it has their sort of outtakes. And it shows you the original context of some of the archive footage they're showing of what the people, what the sort of, you know, Kissinger or others were really talking about. But of course, it means segments of this show end up on YouTube, end up all over the place without the blooper reel at the end. Yeah. And so everyone thinks there's this amazing, definitive, dramatic confession of it. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. It is. It really is, because I think it gets to the heart of some of the, the ways that particularly the internet and I really would love to know, you know, Alex, what your feeling is about the way social media has sort of given these films and these ideas so much, something just a far bigger audience, a far bigger platform. But it reminds me of some of the earliest conspiracy theories. I forget the name of the guys now. And in their sort of 50, I think it was the late 50s and 60s, they started placing fake conspiracy theories in the letters pages of Playboy. And a lot of this was about the Illuminati and how the Illuminati were, were responsible for a lot of the things that were taking place, meant as a joke, but obviously then seen as, you know, in, in that kind of Jim Garrison way, always looking for patterns, always looking for this, you know, the, the secret symbols that are going to come through popular culture. I mean, Alex, what's your take on all of this? You know, you grew up in America. I'd love to know, like, what were the conspiracy theories that UCLA that were taking off on you there or Yale and what a kind of you know how do you feel now about the way that social media has kind of taken up the mantle if you like of the you know the, the premium platform for conspiracy 
Well, the, the great thing or the great or terrible thing about social media is that it moves so fast. Mm. You know, conspiracies back in the day, uh, you know, were, 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 were hand to hand or, or, or were received through sacred texts. You know, it was like now, you know, a, a deep fake photograph, you know, can spread on the Internet so quickly mm. um, and it becomes so seductive for, for that reason. Um, and, and also because we're also ADD at this moment, you see something, you, you're grabbed by it, particularly if you're grabbed by it emotionally, you retweet. And the next thing you know, it's, it, it's spreading like wildfire. So yeah. that I think is, it really has changed. It's the, 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 the speed of, of something that, that really it's in, in some ways it's, it's sort of lost a little bit of the romance. It's an oral tradition, but, but the thing about social media is that it moves so fast. I thought the interesting thing, uh, on this about the ideas of why people jump to it. There's a really charming thing that I found in the notes that, uh, I just thought I would throw as a, a final close off. And, uh, in 2004, two academics tried to do some proper research to, do a presentation to show why the top 10 claims that it was a hoax were false. And they presented this at a monthly lecture in a planetarium in Glasgow to 94 people for the Glasgow Science Centre. Um, and interestingly, even after the stirring conclusion, discussion and debate followed, even after Martin and Ken's superb presentation, a note of the uh, meeting uh, says, <laughs> there were hoax claim believers in the audience who remained unconvinced. It did not take long, though, for everyone to see that these beliefs are based more on personal prejudice than fact. Ooh. Um, but in total, the evening brought in £345 for the Glasgow Science Centre <laughs> <laughs> the 2004 lecture series on a high note. Always good for a fundraise. I, I loved the optimism, though, of the idea that they would sort of present this quite calm, neutral, factual presentation to some people who've believed this for such a long time, and they would change. The kind of the optimism of it really lifts me. So, gents, we come to the final part of the podcast where we have to decide once and for all if this is a fugazi or if it's the real deal. So, Alex Gibney, famous documentary maker, is the moon landings the real deal or is it a fugazi? A complete fugazi. <laughs> no, it's the real deal. Yeah. It definitely happened. <laughs> James? So I, I think the real conspiracy is that Stanley Kubrick walked on the moon and this conspiracy <laughs> was just set up to cover that up. Well, if he did, and the lack of oxygen might, might sort of explain some of his later filmmaking choices, uh, the new conspiracist will return next week. Thank you so much for uh, listening to the podcast. Please do like, share and subscribe. It makes a massive difference to the god of the algorithm. So finally, from me, Jolien Rubenstein, thank you very much. James, do you want to have a final word to our wonderful audience? Yes, uh, follow me on Twitter at JamesRBUK <laughs> and unfollow Jolien on all platforms. <laughs>